Isn't it lovely to have some gurgling in the back there? That's Evan saying hi to his granny. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much to Sharon and to the worship team for leading us so meaningfully in worship this morning. Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> and if anyone else has a trumpet hiding anywhere, please let us know. <laughs> Last Sunday afternoon, a good friend of mine who is a newly ordained Anglican minister and also a new father invited our family to his house for the ceremonial lighting of the Christmas tree at the beginning of Advent, mainly for the benefit of his daughter, who's two years old. <laughs> now, if you're a good Baptist, you might ask the question, what is Advent? Well, it's a Christian season of preparation for Christmas, a little bit like Lent is a season of preparation for Easter, and it begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, which was last Sunday. The term comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. Uh, that also translates the Greek word parousia, which is the term that is used in the New Testament to describe the second coming of Jesus. And so putting all of that together, the season of Advent celebrates the first coming or Advent of Christ in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and it anticipates the second coming or Advent of Christ at a day and an hour that is unknown to us all. Getting back to my friend for a moment, because he's an Anglican, we didn't just have coffee and mince pies and switch on the lights and watch the kids play. Uh, we did do that, but we also had a whole mini liturgy with prayer and scripture and responsive reading and everything. And the prayer was one that I found really moving and meaningful and thoughtful. In fact, I shared it on our congregational WhatsApp group the following day. The prayer for Advent says this, Almighty Father, your Son came to us in humility as our Savior, and at the last day he will come again in glory as our judge. Give us grace to turn away from darkness to the light of Christ, that we will be ready to welcome him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Makes me want to become an Anglican. <laughs> I thought it would be good this morning to explore those themes in a little more detail. And I'd like to do so from a short passage in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. Just four verses. In fact, just one sentence in the original Greek language in which it was written. So Paul is writing this letter to a young man called Titus, one of Paul's fellow workers. He was one of Paul's right-hand men who often took on challenging tasks in the Church of Jesus Christ in those early days. Uh, for instance, Titus was very involved in that troubled church called Corinth, uh, taking Paul's correspondence uh, back and forth between the church and Paul in his various travels. At present, Titus is ministering in the church on the island of Crete, just off the Greek mainland. And again, he's got a difficult task. 
As we read in the opening verses of the letter, Paul has left him on Crete to put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town in the face of rebellious people who were teaching things they ought not to teach for the sake of dishonest gain, full of meaningless talk and deception. So quite a mission that Titus had. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage Titus in his work and to give him some further instructions. As I said, we'll pick up on the letter in chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. It's a lovely passage for Advent. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is God's word. The last verse in our passage is one that we hear a great deal of at this time of the year, isn't it? That little word, good. Uh, This week I saw a meme that said, Dear Santa, I've been good all year. Okay, maybe most of the time. Well, perhaps once in a while. Oh, never mind, I'll buy my own presents this year. (laughs) Maybe you're looking forward to Christmas Day because everyone seated around the Christmas table will be a model of spirituality and emotional maturity. But even in the best families, someone is going to get upset on Christmas Day. Great great Aunt Maud will open up her present and everyone will know from the look on her face that she disapproves. Or Tiny Tim will throw a wobbly because he didn't get a handheld PlayStation 12. Oh yes, you can make excuses for him. He's tired. It's past his bedtime. He's only 36. But the peace, (laughs) but the peace and the harmony of the day will, will be destroyed. And what do we say to ourselves in those moments? We say either audibly or just to ourselves or our wife says it to us, you should make an effort because it's Christmas. You should be good because it's Christmas. And in fact, a great deal of good is done around the world at Christmas time. Dinners and parties held for the less fortunate, donations made to charities and soup kitchens. There is this emphasis, though, on being good because it's Christmas. Titus chapter 2 is actually a passage all about being good. For homework, you can go away and read the first 10 verses, which speak about goodness among God's people. Paul says that older men are to be dignified and mature. Older women are to be reverent and teachers of the young. Younger women are to be good wives and mothers. Young men are to control themselves. Titus is to be a good teacher and model. Slaves are to be good and conscientious and honest. 
Even in the verse that we've just read, in verse 12, we read that all of us are to renounce evil and to live godly, righteous, and disciplined lives in this present age. And the question may come, well, why? Why are we to be good? And Paul gives the answer in the passage that we've just read. You may have noticed that the passage begins with the word for or because. Paul is now giving the reason that he's called us to be good. And what is the reason for this goodness? Are we simply to make an effort because it's Christmas? No, Paul's answer to the question of why we should be good is quite straightforward. It is that in Jesus Christ, there has been an appearance of God's grace in the past, and there is going to be an appearance of his glory in the future. And a proper understanding of those two appearances, one in the past, one in the future, gives and changes everything in the present. So let's look at these two appearings one at a time. Firstly, there's the appearance of grace. One of the local primary schools has been using our main auditorium here to practice their nativity play all week. So all week I've been listening to the various carols and the narration in my study. And it struck me as I was listening again and again and again uh, that there probably isn't a person in our nation who doesn't know something of the Christmas story. We know the main characters, Mary, Joseph, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men. We know the basic storyline. But look at how beautifully and succinctly Paul describes that first Christmas. Just a few words. Here is Paul's description of Christmas in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. The Greek word for appeared is in fact the word epiphany, which means the revealing of something that was always there. It's not like it wasn't there before, it was there, but now it has been revealed. Uh, the word is used in a secular way in the book of Acts, for example, when Paul finds himself as a prisoner on a ship on his way to Rome. And Luke, who's writing the book, tells us in chapter 27 how the ship gets caught in a furious storm and that for days neither sun nor stars appeared. That same word, epiphany. It wasn't that the sun and stars weren't there. It's just that the storm clouds prevented them from appearing. And in the same way, it's not that the grace of God was absent before the coming of Jesus. Psalm 103, for example, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. God has always been the God of all grace. But in Jesus, the grace of God has appeared in bodily form. Jesus is the embodiment of the grace of God. The birth of Jesus is the appearance of God's grace. And in Jesus, we see the sheer beauty of God. I have to say that as a guy, for many years, I found it difficult to speak about the beauty of Jesus. It just felt a little bit awkward. But now that I've grown up a little bit, uh, I have to say that there is something beautiful, compelling, 
gracious about our Lord Jesus. There are so many examples that you can read as you read through the various incidents in the Gospels that speak about the grace and the beauty of Jesus. Uh, but in my research for uh, our recent series on sexual ethics, I was particularly struck by how Jesus interacted with women. I don't know if you've thought about it before, but in Jesus' day, women were really second-class citizens. You know, they couldn't testify in a court of law because their testimony wasn't considered of any value. They were thought of as being silly and rather stupid. They couldn't study God's law. One of the rabbis around Jesus' time said it would be better to burn a copy of the Torah than allow a woman to study it. Another rabbi said when a boy comes into the world, peace comes into the world. When a girl comes, nothing comes. And because of that attitude, most rabbis would not speak to a woman other than their wife in public. And yet, look at how Jesus treated women in the Gospels. Jesus talked with women, taught women, touched women, healed women, used women as illustrations in his sermons. He elevated them, lifted them up out of their disposed, despised social standing, and did so with absolute purity so that prostitutes felt completely safe around him. Dorothy Sayers was an English crime writer and poet and Christian who died back in 1957. And she captured something of the beauty of Jesus in relation to women in one of her nonfiction books. She said this, It is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross, also the first at the tomb. They'd never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. Maybe if you are a male this morning and can't relate to that, consider Pontius Pilate's words to the crowd that first Easter. He brings Jesus out and says, Behold the man. The words seem so ironic as Jesus stands there with a crown of thorns on his head, having been mocked and whipped and beaten. And yet consider the strength of a man who can endure such abuse from ungodly men with such control and poise and dignity and forgiveness and grace. As I said, when you read how Jesus interacts with all sorts of different people in the Gospels, there is something deeply compelling about this man. 
But the grace of Jesus is not simply seen in his life and words and works. It's seen supremely in his mission. You see, the grace that appeared is saving grace. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Notice that this saving grace is open to all, to all people. And in verse 14, Paul describes this salvation in greater detail. He says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Now, there's too much to look at in detail there. You could write a book on each one of those words. In fact, books have been written. But notice that Paul says that grace offers us salvation. We, we need saving, rescuing. And the word redeemed tells us what, what it is that we need rescuing from. A, a redemption was the price that was paid for a slave, we might like to say, along with the Jewish people of Jesus' day, we are Abraham's children and have never been slaves of anyone. But as the British journalist Malcolm Muggridge once put it, the truth is that in the dark little dungeon of our own ego, we are prisoners of our self-centeredness, prisoners of our guilt, prisoners of the wrath of God that is upon us because of our inexcusable guilt. And Christ comes and rescues us by giving himself for us to redeem us, set us free from wickedness, and purify us to be his very own. Jesus lived the perfect life that I should have lived. Think of his perfect interactions with everyone around him. He lived a life without sin, he then died the death I should have died for my sin. And then in return, he gives me his perfect life. Jesus' sinlessness and holiness and righteousness are credited to me when I trust him. So God's grace in Jesus is that you and I don't get what we do deserve, punishment, death, eternal separation from God, and we do get what we don't deserve, Jesus' righteousness and purity and an eternal relationship with him. And I wonder if you've encountered that for yourself. Perhaps this is the very first time you've heard what the Christian faith is all about. Maybe you'd like to find out a little bit more, in which case I'm happy to chat with you during the week. I love coffee. I love you. love to chat further. Or perhaps you've known about this for decades, in which case I hope and pray that that truth would come to us with freshness and newness this Christmas. But I think it's vital to recognize that a genuine encounter with this grace changes everything. Grace accepts us as we are, but grace is not content to leave us as we are. As one writer points out, you can't open the gift of Christmas and stay the same. 
When we read about Jesus in the Gospels, we see that he welcomed everyone who came to him. No one was ever turned away, and at the same time, everyone whom Jesus welcomed went away very different from the way when they came. As we've seen, the grace that appeared offers salvation to all people. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what others have done to you. Jesus welcomes you. But once you've genuinely experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus, nothing will be quite the same again. And in fact, nothing continues to be the same again. Week by week, we come here to church and we open God's word and we see areas of our lives that need changing. There are behaviors and relationships and habits that perhaps we have to put off and other actions and thoughts and habits that we need to take up. Jesus touches every area of our lives, even our wallets. <laughs> you see, the grace that saves is also the grace that teaches. Verse 12, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's a lifelong project of cooperating with God's Holy Spirit to become more like the Lord Jesus, a project that isn't over until the day that we die. Notice the vitally important order in these verses, though. We tend to say, try and be good for Christmas. But that's actually the total opposite of the gospel message that Christmas is all about. As the Bible scholar Chris Wright puts it, the message of Christmas from the scriptures is not, you have to be good so that God, like Santa Claus, will be good to you and bring you presents. Rather, the message that we find in the Christmas story is this, God has already been good to you. He has proved his kindness and his grace and has already given you the greatest gift he ever could. Therefore, live in response to that. It's not our goodness that makes Christmas possible. It's Christmas that makes our goodness possible and indeed sustainable. You see, the gift of salvation is completely free and yet in one sense, when we receive it, it costs us everything. The best way of illustrating this is with a story that I've used before about the American president, Abraham Lincoln. I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, but the story goes how as a young lawyer, Abraham Lincoln went along to a slave auction to see what was going on there. And he was deeply distressed to see black Americans being chained like cattle and auctioned off to the highest bidder. At one point, a young woman was brought to the auction block and bidding started. Lincoln watched as various people made their bids. And then, in fact, he put in a bid of his own. His bid was counted by another. He bid higher, was counted again. Finally, Lincoln outbid all the others and the auctioneer proclaimed sold. The slave traders then brought the young woman off the block, block and set her at Lincoln's feet. And he reached down and he unlocked her chains and said, you are free. 
The young woman looked up at Lincoln with a puzzled expression and asked, what does it mean to be free? Lincoln replied, it means you can think anything you want, you can say anything you want, you can go wherever you want. The reality of her newfound freedom began to sink in, and with tears streaming down her cheeks, the young woman replied, then I will go with you. You see, Jesus sets us free from sin, and when we encounter his beauty and grace, when we realize that Jesus is God giving himself for us, then we choose to go with him, which in one sense curtails our freedom, but in a totally different way to when we were slaves to sin. The grace of God that saves us and transforms us by teaching us. Perhaps it's also important just to say that this lifelong project of becoming like Jesus is something that we get to do together. In verse 14, Paul says that Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that God has purified for himself a large number of individuals The Christian life isn't lived in splendid isolation. We form part of the people of God. We we all form part of the great worldwide people of God, stretching down through the centuries, all the way back to Adam, a people whose true identity and number are known by God alone. But we also form parts of uh, little pockets of people who gather together at a particular time and place to worship God and encourage one another. And I'm so grateful for this particular little pocket called the classic congregation of the Pinelands Baptist Church. We're meant to have honest and deep and intimate relationships with one another where we encourage one another and build one another up as well as correct and rebuke one another until we all reach the full stature of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that is the thing that is going to change our country. Just reading about what Jackie has, has suggested to us today and thinking of the immense possibility of what we could do if we were a community. We can't wait for the politicians to change our country. Don't think that a different president or a different party will make any difference. It's as we as a church start loving one another and encouraging one another and providing for one another. If all of the churches in South Africa did that, that would change this nation. The verse isn't up there, but I was really challenged by Acts chapter 2, where we read that all the believers were together and had everything in common, They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and they changed the world. We're here today because of them. That's another sermon. (laughs) Let's move on. Secondly, in these verses, Paul describes not only the appearance of grace at that first Christmas, but the appearance of glory when Christ returns. 
As Pastor John Stott puts it in his commentary on this passage, he who appeared briefly on the stage of history and disappeared will one day reappear. He appeared in grace. He will reappear in glory. Have a look at verse 13. Paul says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice again the use of the word appearing. In other words, the revelation of something that is present, although unseen. It's not that Jesus is not here. He is present and working among us gloriously. But one day the veil will be taken away and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, this Advent season is not only intended to get us spiritually and mentally prepared for the chaos of Christmas in a few weeks' time. The season of Advent is intended to remind us and prepare us for the second appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the end of time. And we sing about that in that carol, once in royal David's city. The final two verses of that carol and our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by. We shall see him, but in heaven, set at God's right hand on high. To be a Christian means to wait for the blessed hope, the hearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that has some very real practical implications for you and me seated here this morning. It reminds us that our job on earth is much greater than simply passing matric and getting a place in university and getting a job and finding a marriage partner and having children and getting them through matric and university and marriage and children of their own before we finally retire somewhere nice. This verse reminds us that our greatest task on earth is to spend time getting to know the Lord Jesus, this side of the curtain, if you like, before we meet him face to face and spend eternity with him. You see, the blessed hope is not a place, heaven, but rather a person, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That means that our life's ambition has to be to get to know and love him now. Because if we don't know and love him, we're certainly not going to enjoy heaven. The appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ will result either in our running or perhaps hesitantly walking towards the person that we've been corresponding with our whole lives, or the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ will result in horror, the awful realization that we are coming face to face with the person whom we've tried to resist and ignore and exclude our whole lives long. In the words of a hymn by Stuart Townsend, on that final day, the sentence, Jesus is Lord, will either be a shout of joy or a cry of anguish. 
A few days ago, uh, we discovered a chameleon in our back garden. We haven't had a chameleon in the back garden for years. Uh, and the wonderful thing about chameleons, uh, besides their extraordinary skin, uh, is their ability to look in two different directions at the same time. <laughs> a chameleon is one of those remarkable creatures who can see where he is going while at the same time looking back at where he's been. <laughs> And you know, as Christians, we're supposed to be chameleons in the best sense of that word. We're supposed to look at two, in two different directions at the same time. We're to keep looking backwards to the appearance of grace at that first Christmas and the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and to keep looking forward to the appearance of glory. Those two outlooks change everything in the present. We live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Lives that bring pleasure to God and to others and to ourselves. In fact, we take hold of the life that is truly life. To quote Pastor John Stott again, this deliberate orientation of ourselves, this looking back and looking forward, this determination to live in the light of Christ's two comings, to live today in the light of yesterday and tomorrow, this should be an essential part of our daily discipline. We need to say to ourselves regularly the great acclamation, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's pray together. Almighty Father, your Son came to us in humility as our Saviour, and at the last day he will come again in glory as our Judge. Give us grace to turn away from darkness to the light of Christ, that we will be ready to welcome him, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.